We are looking at stories that Jesus told. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And every time I come to a new passage, and especially this summer as I've come to new stories, I see things entirely new. And that's one of the wonderful things about Scripture is that they, they never get old. Um, they're always fresh in terms of the relevance that they have for our lives. But they're also always fresh because they are so full of content that you can hardly ever mine all of it. So I've, I've been finding that. And the one that we're looking at today is no exception. In fact, my study this week of this particular parable has taken an enormous turn. And some of you today are going to think I've copped out. And, and I'll just fess up right now that I thought what I would be talking about was a very difficult talk about hell and suffering in fire in hell. And fortunately, my study took me in another direction. But you probably won't let me off the hook, and you'll probably say, okay, at least come back sometime and explain what all that was. But the way that this story is told um, fits entirely into what we've been learning about Jesus' agenda as he's telling the stories that he tells, knowing full well that all around the crowd are the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes who are scrutinizing everything that he says, who are criticizing everything that he says, and he has a campaign against them. It is clear that he's campaigning against them, and pretty soon they join in the struggle, and they have a campaign against him. And it's in that context that Jesus tells this story. Now, is it a story? Is it a parable or is it a true account of something that happened? That's what people have talked about. Because this is the only parable, if, it's that, if that's what it is, in which the characters are named. And would Jesus name a character um, if it was only a story? He hasn't done it so far, so we wonder if he might be telling something other than a parable this time. So I'm, I'm going to propose that he's not telling something different. Because we're told that he never taught without using parables. He never taught without using stories. This is a very important lesson for us that are the, those who are trying to teach other people. The stories are just really, really important. So here is the story that he tells. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Rich man, the, the language is all opulent. He is someone who is splendidly clothed in purple. And uh, whereas today you can get any color, any which color, any which hue of that color, purple was a very special dye um, that was only available to those who were well off. And so those who were clothed in purple were those who could afford the finest of clothes. And the fine linen would have been his undergarments, which are sourced in Egypt. And he would have had those imported and sewn so that everything about this guy was just opulent. He was the quintessential rich man. And the setting is quite a realistic setting as well because he lives in this big gated community. And at his gate, there is a, a beggar uh, whose name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is just longing for the crumbs off of the rich man's table. And he's covered in sores. And the dogs were told, come and, and literally lick his sores. 
So it's, it's, an, it's a pathetic story of this man who seems to be unaware, or at least inattentive, to the person who is at his gate and is suffering terribly, longing for even the scraps that might come from the rich man's table. So as we begin to imagine ourselves in this situation, um, the rich man, and Dante calls him Dives, which simply is the Latin for rich man. It's not a, it's not a real name. There's the rich man, and he's juxtaposed against the poor man, whose name is Lazarus, who is covered in sores. Now, Lazarus. I need to give you a little um, linguistic lesson here. When Jesus was talking, he was not talking in Greek. That might be a surprise to you, because we know the Old Testament in our Bibles was in Hebrew, the New Testament largely in Greek, but Jesus would publicly and privately have been conversing in Aramaic. Aramaic was a Hebrew kind of a language, and uh, we get the translation of what Jesus said in Greek, but he would have said what he said in Aramaic. That's very important for us to understand because the Aramaic word for Lazarus is Eleazar. So I want you to hold on to that in your head because the turn that my study took has all together to do with this name, Eleazar. So Jesus, in his Aramaic dialect, would have told the story and said it's a rich man and Eleazar, um, Lazarus to us, who is the beggar who's covered in sores. Now, we have fully got from Jesus that you don't get the kingdom unless you deal with two impediments, because he brings them up over and over and over again. You don't get the kingdom unless you deal with riches. You don't get the kingdom unless you deal with religion. Jesus positions riches and religion as two blocks in the way of people's pilgrimage to the kingdom. And says if, if you don't deal with them, if you are improperly oriented towards riches or religion, Jesus says, I have, I have a conversation I want to have with you. You are not likely finding the kingdom if those are your commitments or your obsessions. Now, last week we kind of covered off riches, right? Because all of a sudden Jesus tells a story and the, the application of the story surprised us, right? Because he said, if you can get money, use it. Use it to make friends. Remember? That, that was he, what he said. He, he told the story about this shrewd manager and said this guy knew he was fired. And so he went and he curried favor with the debtors and said, whatever your bill is, we'll discount it. And he did that because he knew that later on when he was fired, he could get income by going back to his master's debtors and saying, remember I did you a favor, I need you to do me a favor. And the story goes that he did that and favor was granted. So Jesus says, and the manager, um, far from being sort of disciplined by his master over that, the master sort of has a grudging respect for the shrewdness, for the cleverness of this manager. And Jesus says, and that's actually the way it is. Those who are not in the kingdom are usually shrewder, more clever than those who are. So he said, with money, use it to curry favor because then you will find yourself with the people with whom you have curried favor 
in God's house at the end of the day. And we sort of said, well, how, how does that work? Well, it seems that what God is saying, what Jesus is saying is, use your wealth in relationships so that you can make friendships, you can have opportunity with folks, and in that friendship, you can be a kingdom bringer. And later on, when you're in the kingdom, it'll be with these people with whom you have socially spent your life. So we're thinking, wow, that's pretty interesting. Now he follows it up by saying, but be very careful because money is deceptive. And you, you can only serve one master. You can't serve both money and God. So in all of this, be wise in your use of financial resources, but also learn how to be a steward of the money that God has given you. So, so Jesus is not throwing wealth under the bus, but he's just saying be very, very careful. And so often the rich man caricature is not just a person who is factually rich, but it's somebody who has been conquered by riches, who serves riches. And uh, that's not um, kosher for the kingdom. But the other thing that uh, Jesus gives hardly any room for is religion as an impediment to the kingdom of God, which seems totally counterintuitive, doesn't it? That church can get in your way of Jesus. Oh, when I say it that way, actually there are a lot of people who would say, yeah, no surprise there. Right? So let's track that as we go a little bit farther. And remember that uh, Lazarus is Eliezer, and it'll all make sense to you in a little while. So Jesus goes on, and he says, Finally the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Now that's what you want to figure out with me, right? Is um, what has been called the two compartment theory. That before the death of Jesus, um, hell had two regions. One was paradise and one was Sheol. And they were in the same place geographically, however that would work, but they're separate from each other. Hence, um, this story is cited as um, if, even if it's not an actual story that happened, Jesus would tell the right details. And so it's claimed that before Jesus died that um, the wicked dead went to one compartment, the righteous dead went to another compartment. And then there's this very strange language in Ephesians where Paul says um, Christ led captivity captive. And so this two-compartment theory that's a very ancient theory is that when Jesus died, um, remember he said to Mary, don't hold on to me because I haven't gone to my father yet. Well, where had he been? The idea is that he went into hell and he stole paradise out of hell. Didn't steal it, but he conquered hell and released paradise. So there was this idea that it was Abraham's bosom on the one side of the dividing line, and on the other side was Sheol, and the righteous dead went one place, and the wicked dead went another place. So we need an hour to talk about what that all means and what the punishment is and, and all of that stuff. But we'll carry on with the story because Jesus is just saying, here's what happened. The terrible situation, the terrible dichotomy of this rich, opulent man who cared nothing for the Lazarus at his gate, it ended with both of them dying. And he has, he has Lazarus being born by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man simply dying and going to hell. 
And as we carry on, what happens in the dialogue, what happens in the drama is this. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Now, Father Abraham is a very important phrase that we're, we're going to latch on to when we figure out why Lazarus is in the story. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, okay, Father Abraham, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he's here being comforted and you're in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Well, the testimony of the scriptures about Jesus um, is something that, that we need to, to, to grasp and, and see how the story fits into that whole set of things. So then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. What was happening in the life and ministry of Jesus that this touches on? So this, this man feigns some kind of change of mind and repentance and says, but you have to go tell my brothers. I don't want them to come here. And Jesus says, the answer from Abraham is, they have their Bibles. And that's the final answer from Abraham as far as Abraham's concerned. He, he says, um, you want me to send somebody from here? No. They have the law and the prophets. They can find out all they need to know from the law and the prophets. Well, what, what does that mean? What, what's he getting at? In John 4, verse 39, it says this. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me. So that's one of the ways that he went at the Pharisees. And it's what I think he's poking at in this story. Abraham says, no, no, that's not a plan that I will let Lazarus go or anyone else go from here um, because things are fixed here. The two places are different and, and apart. And by the, by the way, they've got the law and the prophets. So the thing that broke down entirely in the, the religion of Jesus' day was that what should have happened simply did not happen because of something wrong in the hearts of the religious people. What should have happened is that as they studied the law, it would have been evident that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus said, you spend your time searching the scriptures, but the scriptures are about me, and you won't accept me. A journey that a person takes is a journey through the scriptures as um, the holy word of God to us that brings us up through the narrative of the Old Testament to the person of Jesus and is impressed on us by the Holy Spirit that all of that stuff in the Old Testament was about this guy. It was about him. 
And so when Jesus came, what ought to have happened was that open minds and open hearts would have recognized that he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But they refused to accept him. He didn't fit the caricature that religion had built of the Messiah. And so they said, no, not you. You weren't born in the right place. You don't talk the right way. You don't teach the right things. You are against religion. And my goodness, how could you be the Messiah and against your very own people? Um, you're causing you know, this terrible, terrible disruption all around. So no. And Jesus in this story goes after that and says, no, you know, you've, you have the scriptures. Nobody's coming back from the dead. And besides that, even if people did come back from the dead, if someone were to return from the dead, they wouldn't listen to them. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, here's an irony in the story. Someone did rise from the dead, and what was his name? Lazarus, right? Couldn't you have chosen a different name, Jesus? Because now we're all confused. Is that who you're talking about? Is Lazarus your friend in Bethany who dies, and then you raise him from the dead? Is that what this is about? Because when we get to that account, we find that what happens after Lazarus is raised from the dead is that the Pharisees try to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus as well. So that's what actually happens when somebody comes back from the dead in, in the story of Jesus. So was Jesus anticipating Lazarus' resurrection? And is that why the story takes this turn? I don't think so. And, and here's, here's a really strange thing. There, is, uh, there are two or three other, but there is one pretty significant Eliezer in the Old Testament. And the story of this Eliezer is back in Genesis 15. Here's what happens one day. God is talking to Abraham, and he's saying, I'm going to do all of these incredible things. You're going to become this great you know, um, patriarch of a great movement, all this stuff. And, and Abraham goes, yeah, excuse me, that's all well and good, but I don't have any kids. So how's all, how's all this going to happen since I don't have any children? The only person that I can think of is the steward of my household, whose name is Eliezer of Damascus. If I don't get a son, he gets my inheritance. And God says to Abraham, your inheritance will come from your own seed. Eliezer of Damascus. I think that's who the story's about. So let me see if I can convince you of that, because I know if I were you, I'd be going, I have no idea how he got there. Jesus is telling a story that I think is just a story. But the contents of the story, the shifts in the story, the, the emphases in the story are about the fact that there is a person who has an incredible impediment to belief. And his impediment to belief is wrapped up in his being called a rich man. But that's, that's the crowd that Jesus has been campaigning against the whole while. And so this person was not only held from um, 
getting the kingdom by his riches, but also by his religion, because his religion did not turn his heart towards the Lazarus at his gate. And when he got to the end of his life and moved on into the afterlife, he all of a sudden then wants to get his religion straight. And he says, I want my brothers to get their religion straight. And Jesus says, okay, now that's the very point. What do you want? As though Abraham were asking that. And the rich man says, what I want is for you to send somebody back to tell them so they don't end up in this place of judgment. And Abraham says, well, what would be the point in that? They've already got the scriptures. Well, I know they have the scriptures, but if somebody came back from the dead, they would believe that person. They wouldn't, even if somebody came back from the dead. Two cases in point, Lazarus and Jesus himself. And the story about Eliezer of Damascus is kind of Jesus putting in the Pharisees' face the fact that what should have happened in their understanding of the scriptures was that they entered into their identity as the people of promise, the, the generations of promise. But in the story, Jesus says that's not how it turned out because you were blocked by your riches and by your religion from knowing who I was. And so it's as though the Eliezer, who was not the son of promise, but was the one who legitimately could claim the inheritance. In the story, Jesus says, that's the one that gets the blessing. That's the one who was favored by God. True story? No, it's not a true story. It's a parable. It's Jesus going hard and going deep after the religious leaders and saying, here is the travesty. And the story of John is that Jesus came to his own things and his own people rejected him. And the stories that Jesus tells are story after story about their failure to get the kingdom because they refuse to get him. He doesn't fit what they want. Even his faithful followers have such difficulty with the way that he lives, the way that he um, teaches out the kingdom and what he calls them to, and they scratch their heads over and over again. Far more the thousands of hard-hearted religious people who miss religion because of their religion. So the question this morning that I want to ask is this. Is it possible that our religion could yet have betrayed Jesus? Because in, in just that strength of language, that's what happened. The Jewish religion betrayed Jesus. Rather than leading the world into a relationship with Jesus, they betrayed him by establishing a religion that was false. False in its intent, false in its outcome, and it showed up in riches and religious fastidiousness, neither of which were conducive to the kingdom arriving. And then Jesus goes on and through the rest of his earthly ministry and into the teachings of the rest of the New Testament, we get that it's not that way. So why have we heard Jesus talk on and on and on about humility? Why doesn't he stop talking about humility and servanthood? Because he knows that power and pride and all of those things that have fueled the, the religion of his day have been an impediment to religion instead of a help to religion. And so in all of his parables, he just seems to go after the things that have betrayed him and 
the church in its day, we might call the Jewish religion of the day the church, but the religion of the day, the institutional religion of the day, betrayed Jesus. So it is at least theoretically altogether possible that religion could actually betray Jesus. I confess that it is altogether possible that my religion could betray Jesus. What's happening these days is that religion, if we identify ourselves as religious people, as we identify ourselves as evangelical Christians, our religion has parted company from itself into the two opposite poles. We have gone right and we have gone left. And so what we notice, that which gets our attention, is that a whole generation of us have walked away while we are turning left or we are turning right. Now, what, what do I mean by right and left? We're turning right, which is to get even more um, tight and um, resistant and, you know, being the ones that are, are right and need others to be sure they sign what we say is right. There's that whole move, and there's a movement over there that basically has thrown everything out the window and has said, um, we no longer accept the Christianity that we were taught or the church that we were raised in. And so we are left here looking around asking, whoa, what has happened? And I think the honest question we need to ask is this, has our religion betrayed Jesus? Has what evangelicalism has now become actually been something that has dismissed the Jesus who is its heart? Do we follow him? Or do we follow something else that has been more acceptable than the ridiculous things that he said? Remember when he sent people away and said, no, 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 there are too many of you here. So unless you're willing to hate your family, unless you're willing to pick up your cross every day, unless you're willing to give up everything you have, you can't follow me. And I think in the middle of that, we say, no, that's not really necessary. Good church services, good music, good teaching, that's what's necessary. We're, we're good with that. And all the while, I think Jesus is going, hmm, yeah, but. And so we can see in the, the early days, in the religion of the day of Jesus, we can see in spades how religion actually betrayed Jesus. But I think we're blind to the ways in which we might have betrayed him. I also have some great news. From what I am discovering, we're coming back. And the we that is coming back are millennials. So far from their being to be blamed for anything, there is a movement now that is a movement back. So it is a movement away from the religion that might have betrayed Jesus to a faith that honors Jesus and follows him. And many observers are saying that's, um, that is the revival of the church. But the first thing we all have to do is just ask the question, is it possible that our religion has betrayed Jesus in some way or other? We need to do it individually, corporately, and we need to do it with hope. Because what Jesus did say is this, that he would build his church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevent it, wouldn't prevail against it. So there is a church in this world that is still assailing the gates of hell. 
it is assailing the gates of hell with enormous power and effect all around the world. But I think there's a day soon coming our way in which we again will assail the gates of hell. And I think it's going to be through a generation that we thought had walked away from Christ when they had only walked away from the church. How many conversations do I have with people who say, well, I'm not into church. I really love who Jesus was and what he taught. Now, you can't compromise. If you go that way, you have to go hardcore. You have to read these stories and say, to follow Jesus is to follow this Jesus, this caustic Jesus, this hardcore Jesus. But if you do, then I think you're on the way back in. So the future is not for us to get more doctrinal and less inclusive and less tolerant in, in what we believe and being right. The solution is not to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, nah, I'm done with it altogether. The way back is to come back to the center and say, let us follow Jesus. Let us follow him together in a way that will not betray him, but will be as faithful as we can possibly be to what he teaches us now and what he calls us to now. It's going to be different, but we're told that there is a change coming in the church that is as massive a change as the Reformation was, when everything will be different and we will be written about If Jesus should tarry, we will be written about decades from now um, about the massive, massive change that came about, the great upheaval when the evangelical church confessed that it had betrayed its Jesus, repented, and came back to following him. That's what I found. And these things are hard. And I want not to be hypocritical. I want to be honest and transparent and say, I don't, I just, that's where the Spirit took me in that story. I think that's where we are. And I think we need to be ready to say, yeah, we may have betrayed the very Jesus that is the Lord of the church. So we got to stop that and come back and call others along with us to come back and say, Jesus is still worth discovering and following. He is still the only answer. You go look anywhere else, the answer is not in being better defined in terms of the club membership. It's not in in despair. The answer is still in the person of Jesus, who is the only hope for the world. So why don't we pray about it? And if what I've said in any measure or to whatever measure is just nonsense, May it drift out of your minds. But if there's something that's true, then may the Spirit prompt us and bother us and show us ways in which we're actually the betrayers of Jesus rather than the followers. Father, we come to you humbly, honestly, and and saying that these stories are just so troubling. And on some levels, we've been able over the years just to read them and to to see where there were others in history who were culpable, who, who didn't get it. But now we find ourselves in a day when we're not sure that we get it. We're not sure that we understand what discipleship really is, what following Jesus really requires of us. We're not sure that we have a testimony in the world um, that compels the world to follow uh, the Jesus of our faith. 
So help us, Father. Give us wisdom and insight. Give us courage and uh, give us power and ability by your Holy Spirit. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.